Well, as the youth are heading out, I'll just briefly introduce myself. My name is Chris Watkins. Uh, my wife, Tammy, and our daughters, uh, we've been a part of the CCC community for uh, nine years, five months, 25 days, and 16 hours, but we're not counting. So it's been a privilege to be here in Beijing. We're very grateful for our experiences, and most of what uh, I share when I come up here is a lot of it is, is a result of my time here and our family's time here and the huge impact that God has used Beijing and used the community here to impact us. Today, the, the title of this is called The Necessity of Idols. Um, I'll let the, the, the message speak for itself and let you determine at the end of it uh, whether that's a true statement or not. Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known of God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from that which has been made, so that they are, not, so they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God, nor give thanks to him. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-legged creatures. I would submit to you that this passage is telling us that everybody knows there's a God. No matter what they proclaim to you, that everybody, somewhere deep within them, knows there's a God. And I would submit to you that even Stephen Hawking and Bertrand Russell and David Hume, some of the foremost atheists of all time, if you were to ask them some very basic questions, you could at least get them to say it's a possibility. For example, these guys hold to, in many cases, that science explains everything. That anything before the Big Bang, they get stuck. And when I had a, friend, a guy that worked for me in my work, he was a, a big fan of these guys. And he and I would get into these conversations. And it would always come back to one simple question. Dave, this guy's name. What are the three possible answers to, is there a God? Yes, there is one. No, there is no God. Or maybe. And he would say, yes, that's, that's true. Those are the three possibilities. And I say it's No. I said, no, no, we're not going there yet. I just want to ask you the next question. If this screen up here represents all the knowledge of all the universe for all of time, how much of that do you know? Um, Well, I know that little corner there. Okay, so is it possible? Because you only know that little corner, no matter how smart you are, which you are smart. You're a doctor. You're a really smart guy. But you only know that much. So can you say, I know... There is no God, 100%. And he would say, he would try to avoid the answer of the question. He'd go on and start bringing up other things. Well, how can you say the Bible's true? I'd say, I'm not talking about the Bible. I'm talking about the answer to this question. And always, everybody comes to the same conclusion. They have to be, they're going to be intellectually honest and consistent. They have to say, it's possible that there's a God. And I believe Romans 1 is the truth that is the foundation for why everybody has to at least admit this, because everybody knows within them, because God put that in them. 
everybody knows there's a God. And I didn't even want to ignore him. We're going to talk about all the reasons why we don't want to acknowledge this truth and why we'd rather worship and serve the created things rather than creator. But you cannot avoid this. And Dave, over time, began to acknowledge that and began to move from atheist to some form of seeker of the truth. Now, I'd like to define an idol before we get too far into this because I think if we're not using the same language, it's hard to understand where we're going. An idol is anything that you have in your life in place of God. It can be a person, an idea, a thing, a position, a mission. It is something that you look to for your significance, your security, your satisfaction, and what you allow to define what success is. You order your life around it. And if it was taken from you, you'd be in despair. Or if you don't get it, if you're striving to get it, you'll live in despair if you don't get it. It's what you obey. It's what determines how you live your life. Now, we were made for worship, Romans 1 says, which means we have to worship something. So it's either God himself or something else. There's a bazillion options we've got besides God. The first two commandments that God gave revolved around idols. All the rest of the commandments are the result of idol worship. If you lie, steal, cheat, commit adultery, covet something, it's a result of idol worship. Now, we will ultimately always serve that which we worship. And we're going to talk today about how do you begin that process of understanding, number one, that you have them, number two, what are they, How do you then begin to address replacing those idols with who we are here to worship our God? And remember, you're a slave to whatever it is that you worship. Keep that in your mind. I'd like to pop the slide up if you could. Now, hopefully you guys can see that. If I don't have my glasses on, I can't. I do actually have that portion memorized, so I can actually just look up there. There's two things we're talking about here. We're talking about the truth that many of us in this room claim to believe. And that rep- that's represented on the right side, where we call it the eternal perspective, where the truth, Jesus Christ, is what it is we've ordered our life around. It's what we hope in. You can hope in for things, and you can hope for things. The difference is, hoping for something, uh, there's lots of things we can hope for and not hope in them. You know, I hope that my business is successful. I hope my kids turn out well. I hope my wife and I have a great marriage. I hope everyone here prospers in their life. But if I place my hope in that and it does not happen, I despair. And so when we move from hoping for something to hoping in, it then becomes that which we worship. And the way this works is everybody is disciplined and motivated in the direction of whatever it is they place their hope in. And their hope is based on this truth. So, for example, if I'm a student and I'm looking to get into one of the Ivy League schools, My life is going to be ordered around that. I'm going to commit myself to unbelievable amounts of hours of study and preparation for that. And we see that in the kids in this community, that it's amazing what I see with the commitment they have. And the difference between that being an idol and that just being something good is their response when it doesn't come to pass. Or as parents, our response when it doesn't happen. Do we despair? Are we looking to them getting into one of the Ivy League schools, or one of the other big-name schools, as something that's going to define them, that's going to make them successful? Are we allowing the world to define the success for our children? 
we allow it to define for ourselves. So that child, that's, that daughter or son, is going to be very disciplined and motivated because that's their hope. They're going to get up early. They're going to stay up late. They're going to train. They're going to do extra school activities. They're going to do all these things in preparation for that. For the guys in the workforce, it looks like for us is commitment to our, our companies or our embassies, uh, to our ministries that we're a part of, our parachurch ministries we might be a part of, our churches. We order our life around that, and we let that define what is our success? What is our significance and our security? And you'll see me very disciplined to get up early to go to work, to be at every meeting on time, to sell like crazy, do all the things I need to do to make something successful. My job, my career, my life is tied up into it. So you'll see me very disciplined and motivated in that direction. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. Tim Keller talks about when that's a good thing, but if it becomes an ultimate thing, that's when it's become an idol. And that's where we talk about, over on the left side, an illegitimate hope, a temporal hope. And that's when it would, would become an idol. Now, the problem for most of us Christians, at least for the men that I hang out with, we live in this space in the middle called divided hope, where we claim the right side, but we oftentimes find ourselves living on the left. Men, do you agree with that? We've, anyone experience that? Yeah, I see a lot of guys nodding their heads. And the ones that aren't are just too afraid to nod their heads, so... Guys, that's what we do. And it's ladies too, and it's the kids too. This is the nature of the Christian walk. And what we're going to talk about today is how do you begin to move away? We don't have to live in that divided hope. God does not want us there. He says you don't have to remain there. Let's walk through how we can move from that. Now, one of the greatest stories I find in the Bible that demonstrates this is the story of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, we're going to focus on the three because these guys uh, came up against their truth in a very significant way. The background is uh, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, basically besieged Jerusalem, brought back all the smartest and brightest and the best back to Babylon, trained them up in the ways of the culture for three years, got these guys to learn the language, got these guys to understand everything it takes to be successful in Babylon. And Daniel, through a series of events, and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, get into a place of position because of their faithfulness. They believed God in a particular area and the way they were to have their diet and the way they were to present themselves to the king. And God elevated them by God's choice, not by what they did. God's the one to elevate them to a very significant position. And then came a time of testing. Nebuchadnezzar, despite having seen some of the wondrous works of God through the visions that Daniel had given to him or had revealed to him and had spoken to him about what those meant, decided to build an idol. So he builds, builds the idol, and he says, basically, everybody's got to worship this thing. When the music starts playing, if the music's playing and you don't worship, throw you into the furnace. So, of course, time comes. Shadrach, Meshach, Meshach and Abednego decide, you know what? We're not going to worship that thing. And let's hear what our friend Nebuchadnezzar has to say about that. I find this uh, one of the most powerful passages in Scripture. So this is the response to these guys. So they're in front of Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar says, don't you guys know what I'm about to do to you? You better, you better bow down and worship. And they say, if it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of a blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath, and his facial expressions was, was altered towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I don't know if you guys have ever 
had an act of obedience to God and seen someone rage at you, this, I could imagine this was unbelievably powerful. And of course, he then throws him into the furnace, and, the, and there, from the beginning of time to the end of time, Jesus Christ is present in the story. They throw him into the fire, and guess what? They don't burn up. These guys, by faith, by faith, they don't know God's going to save them. By faith, let themselves be thrown in. An angel, and many speculate, could have been Christ himself, was present in the furnace with them and delivered them. Nebuchadnezzar sees this, says, get out of there, you guys, and says, you know, we're going to bow down and worship to your God. But remember, you should, if you read his language, he's constantly talking about their God. It's not his God yet. He recognizes something intellectually, but he has not taken it himself. He has not decided yet to worship Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's God. But he knew enough to pull them out. These guys, by their faithfulness, demonstrated that the object of their hope, God himself, the object of their hope is what saved them, not their faith. Their faith was a mechanism that they had faith in the object, which was God himself and his promises, and that he could do whatever he wants with them. They were his slave. So if he chose to burn them up, they were fine with it. If they chose to go with them, take them home, they were fine with that as well. Now, I'm sure there was some moment in there where there was, as my buddy Greg calls it, a gut check. You know, where they said, all right, guys, they, I don't know if they huddled up first and said, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go in there and tell them, you know, forget it, Nebuchadnezzar. We're going to do what our God says. I don't know if one of them was scared and one of them wasn't. But I, I found there's, uh, when I was, uh, had my children were young back in the, you know, early, or late 90s, early 2000s, there was a great um, video series called Veggie Tales. And any of you that have kids that are between 10 and 20 years old probably know what I'm talking about. And it was uh, a guy had created basically um, vegetable animation cartoons to demonstrate spiritual truths from the Bible, uh, cool stories. And one of them was this story. And I find actually his interpretation probably more memorable and easier for us to remember even as adults. Because in that story, instead of a golden calf... The Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego worked in a chocolate factory. And Nebuchadnezzar was the GM of the factory. And he basically said, all right, guys, when I'm going to build this big, huge, beautiful chocolate bunny. And when the music plays, everyone's got to worship the chocolate bunny or else I'm going to throw you into the furnace. So the chocolate bunny represented the idol, represented all the idols on the left-hand side in this story. And that these young men, by faith chose to follow God because of the grace of God that he even gave to them in the first place. I don't believe they could have done it without his grace laid on them. I don't think they could have done it without him having demonstrated himself faithful before. And he did. And these guys were faithful. So all of us have a chocolate bunny. Now many of us have more than one chocolate bunny. I know I have quite a few that I've had to work through over the years and I'm still working through. So one of the things I find from from uh, the observations as you go through the Old and New Testament. I'm going to go, go through a couple observations about idols um, and then begin to talk about how do we break this down? How do we move away from the idols to God? In the Psalms, you see that there's a very consistent message against idols. And I think the thing that we have to be, remember about the idols of today are very different from the idols of then. The, idol, the deep idol was still the same. Security, significance, satisfied life, and success. But the the, the kind of the idol that we would see was different. Then it was actually images. They actually would have physical images or 
Maybe it would be the nation, or maybe it would be the king. Nowadays, it's money, it's power, it's position, it's wealth, it's uh, influence, it's social status, it's the schools we go to. All these other things are actually the, what we would see as the idols today that we give ourselves to. So when we're thinking about this, we've got to think about modern day terms, not the old day. Because then we'll think, oh, we don't worship idols today. Well, yeah, we do. We actually have a lot more, I think, and they're more sophisticated and more easily to hide. So the psalm, psalmists are constantly telling us and warning us against it. And the prophets, when you think through all the prophets, they're constantly saying, idol worship is what gets the nation of Israel in trouble. Now remember, the promises that God made to the nation of Israel were, were national. And if these guys were obedient, if the nation was obedient, they would be blessed. If they were disobedient, bad things would happen. And that's the history of Israel from the time of basically of Abraham all the way through to Christ. Today, the promises are more, it appears, individual than corporate. And those individual promises to us then give us the chance for idol worship as well. So back then, individuals worshipped idols, but it was a nation that the promises were to. Today, the promises are more individual. There are promises to the church in general, but there's also more promises to the specific individual. Therefore, the, the need to look at idol worship as us as individuals is even more important than it was in the Old Testament time. Now, the New Testament speaks of idolatry as anything that you've placed your hope in, as we've talked about before. And that includes gaining righteousness from God by the good things that I do. It's called religion. Mar, uh, Rick was talking about last week in Matthew 6. In Matthew 6, it talks about you can't serve God and mammon. He says, lay your treasures on up in heaven, not on earth. You can't serve both. Now, many of us try to serve both. We're trying to figure out a system that works for both, but he's constantly telling us you can't do both. Idolatry is the root of all sin. As we break commandment of idolatry, all the rest will follow. And as this talks about, if I were to, let me show you an example of how this works. This past week, I had a situation at work where a piece of information was given to me and uh, my immediate response was one of significant anger. Uh, I wouldn't say rage, but it was really, really frustration and, high, and, and anger. And I literally was sitting there. And, of course, you know, you're preparing for something during the last couple of weeks. And so I'm very aware of looking at my own idols throughout the course of the week. And I immediately sensed that, okay, what is the, what is the idol that's being attacked? You know, it's, it's, okay, this could affect my company, which could affect our financial security, which could affect our time here in China, which could affect boom, boom, boom. So I was able to very quickly move it back and say, listen, Chris, you're, just, you're, you're, you're thinking that you can control the situation, and that is in, in God's control. There's no reason for you to be getting yourself twisted up. You, you deal with it, you handle it, but for you to be inflamed simply reflects that you've placed an inordinate hope in your business. And in that moment, you know, there's revelation. And there's an opportunity to go back and then work through what we're going to talk about here in a minute of how to begin to root that out in my life and all our lives. My buddy, when he talks about not wanting to believe in God, I believe idolatry itself also is the root of all unbelief. Because if, I, if I'm going to worship my mind or worship science, that's going to lead me to not believe in the promises of God. So it's the source of all unbelief amongst everybody that we run into. Now, the other thing about the idol is it creates a system. So 
Uh, if you're from America, there's a system that the idols of America have created within our culture. In China, there's another set of, of uh, there's another system that's been set up based on the idol of the culture. If you're from Europe and whatever particular country you're from, you have specific idols there. In America, it may be individualism. It may be freedom of everything. Basically, freedom of everything. You, no one should restrict you on anything. You should have the com- complete subjectivity. Pluralism is what many would call it. Um, other worldviews or other systems, fascism, socialism, capitalism, empiricism. Empiricism would be you know, the sciences. These are all schools of thought that are rooted in idolatry of something. And as we begin to understand that, we can then begin to relate within that culture without being of it. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel understood the system of Babylon. They were taught and versed in its ways. And they weren't evil for doing that. We're allowed to understand the systems that we work in. But they did not give their life to it. And they would not bow down to it. And when we bow down to the, the belief of our culture, it's just, as being, it's just as bad as bowing down to an individual thing of money or position or power. And we don't even recognize how strong our culture is within our bloodstream until we sometimes get out of it. I become more aware of our American cultural idols being in China uh, since we left America. When you're in America, it's hard to see that. Same with if you're from China and you go to America, you can see the Chinese idols and their culture. And same with all of us from wherever we're from. And it's unbelievable. When you begin to see that, you're able to then to relate to the culture in a different way, without anger, without judgmentalness, but with freedom. Now, the other thing about idols is they create a delusional field. They create a way that you look at life, a lens. And therefore, you're tainted in how you look at every situation you go into. So it's very important to understand that when you see a situation, you make a judgment about it, it's a result of your idol. It's a result of your culture. It's a result of the way you've been influenced. And the more you do that and the more you stick hard on that, the less you're going to be able to relate with people. So if you find yourself isolated, if you find yourself in a situation where you don't seem to have many relationships... Oftentimes, the result of this is that your worldview has become so narrow and so limited that people can't relate to you because of that. And I find that in my life. If there's certain things I go strong on and becomes an idol to me, I'm unable, unable to relate to others that may have a different view. Also, idols really thrive in religious environments. So we have idols here at CCC. Many of us have no idea that they're there. Some of us do. We may see the idols prevalent on a Sunday morning. And, these are, and how you know, we'll talk about in a second how you def- determine whether you know. But know that a religious environment is probably the most prevalent place for idols. So don't be deceived that just because we're in a religious environment that that's not going to happen. Because religion creates idols just as much as irreligion does. Now what is our response? How are we going to respond to this? Well, Keller and some of his books and some of the things he's taught on and uh, Howard Hendricks and Walt Hendrickson, these other guys have influenced me, talk about two ways. One is, um, there's two ways that usually the world responds to it. So uh, one way is, hey, repent of all those bad things you do. You're being a bad boy or a bad girl. So just repent of those things. Another group will say, oh, rejoice. You just don't know how much God loves you. God loves you so much. You know, you don't need to be so beat up on yourself. You don't need to feel so bad about things. Whereas the gospel says, no, it's both, both. So the problem is our truth. We're looking to something or someone else for my significance, my security, my satisfaction, and my success or happiness. Because of my 
propensity to works-based validation of myself, I want to remain in the system. Unmerited grace is the most difficult thing to accept because it requires that I had nothing to do with it. It's the ultimate humiliation that I can't earn my salvation. And either we figure that out through a process over time where God hammers us and humbles us and we realize it all at once. But I believe it's a process of hammering and then gentleness, hammering and gentleness for us to be able to understand that there's nothing that we're going to do to be freed from the idols apart from trusting in him that he's everything. He is my significance. He is my security, satisfaction, and success. Once I've rested in that truth, I then rejoice in worship. I'm not talking about just singing. I'm talking about the way worship is talked about in the scriptures, which is offering myself as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. That is my spiritual act of worship. I give myself away. I'm poured out wine and broken bread to those around me. That is a person that that understands their freedom in Christ. That is a person that has been broken, that realizes what their truth is, and does not deceive themselves any longer. It doesn't mean they don't have many deceptions during every day, every minute. It just means their life is represented by one that's been broken open for God. Now, when you ask yourself, what are mine then? Okay, now let's get to the good side. What are mine? Now, I'll ask you a couple questions, and this will help you determine. What makes you angry? Think about it. What makes you angry? What gets your blood boiling? John was talking last week about driving in the car. So driving in the car isn't the issue. John will go back in his mind and figure out what is ultimately. It's that everyone else is stupid and I'm smart. Right? That's, that's what it is. No one else knows how to drive. I do. They should be doing what I say. That's not what John's saying. I'm saying that's what I say in my mind. What makes you scared? What scares you? What, what, if you woke up in the middle of the night and you started screaming, what would it be? What would be taken away from you that would make you go insane? Make you break down in despair? What does God need to take from you to take you to that place? Is there anything? What do you wake up thinking about first thing in the morning? What's the last thing you think about when you go to sleep? What is it? People that can't sleep, oftentimes because of worry. What am I worrying about? My security, my significance, satisfied life, and success. What if you lost it would devastate you? On the positive side, what makes you feel great, makes you feel alive? How do your daily, weekly, monthly circumstances impact you just in your emotions and how you deal with life? Now, we're not saying that any of those things that you're going to name and list as you answer those questions are bad things. No, they're good things that they've just been elevated to an ultimate thing. If you serve it, It's an ultimate thing. If you'll break down in devastation by losing it, it's become an ultimate thing. If the sheer terror strikes you when you think about losing it, it's become an ultimate thing. So then how do I take them down? In the Old Testament, they would literally physically run around. There's all these different stories of them literally ripping down the idols and burning them and clearing the entire nation of all the idols. You see these stories. I mean, it's literally a physical process of what they do. Well, because our, all our idols are kind of hidden, we're kind of embedded in the culture, it's a little bit more difficult for us. First of all, as you recognize, you name them. You realize and recognize they have no power. Seriously, money can't make me live forever. 
Money cannot give me significance. Whatever it is I think will satisfy me, I get it. For like 10 seconds, there's this feeling, and then it's gone. I'm thinking of the next thing. It's amazing. We're insatiable. God made us with an insatiable appetite that can only be satisfied in him. So he says, recognize those things and realize they will never, ever support you. They will never, ever give you those things that you, die, you, you desire most. They're also dangerous. Name them and realize how dangerous they are. And then ultimately, they grieve Christ. Think about it. Think about if your kids turn around and when they spit in your face and say, I'm doing this. Just, I mean, that's just a small little taste because we haven't done anything for our kids anywhere close to what Jesus Christ did for each one of us. Nowhere close. And think what that would do to us if our kids reject us in any way or shape or form. It's one of those things that will anger you. I guarantee it. It does for me. He says, realize those things. And then Colossians 3, Romans 8, Hebrews 12. Colossians 3 in particular says, guys, look up. Set your minds on the things above. Set your heart on the things above, for Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Because you've died and your life is hidden in Christ, truth, your truth. You've died and your life is hidden with Christ. The old man is dead, the new man is alive. You do not need to pursue the other things to have significance, to have security and satisfy life. He says, walk away from it. I would tell you, you can go through your life this week and just look at every single thing you're disciplined and motivated to do. And then I will tell you what your truth is. And there's lots of mini-truths, and then there's big truths. The big truths are those questions I asked before. And the mini-truths are you just look at your discipline and motivation. This will reveal to you what you're really committed to. That's why some people will say, you need to read more of the Bible, and you've got to pray more. Well, no, I would never tell someone to do that. I'd say, just recognize who you are in Christ, and all that stuff will come. I never would focus with somebody on the line item, don't do this or do that. I would go to, what is your truth? And then from there, everything comes from it. Because... If you believe what he did for you, you would have an overwhelming sense of gratitude. You can't wait to learn more about him. You can't wait to want to give that away to others. It's an overflow. That's why it's poured out wine and broke bread. You just can't wait. And you don't care if you get used. You don't care if people abuse you. It doesn't matter. Move. We want to get out of divided hope. Men, in particular, we're in this space during the course of a day. I don't know, 8, 10, 12, 15, 20, 30 times a day. Apart from understanding who we are in Christ, we will live in that divided hope, and it is far worse than the guy that lives in illegitimate hope. Illegitimate hope is a consistent, authentic way to live because it's consistent. If money, power is, is your God, then you're, you're living in line with it. That. That's an authentic person. An inauthentic person is someone that says this but does that, and we call that a hypocrite. So, man, I challenge us to move from hypocrisy, live to living for our legitimate hope, and giving grace to ourselves. We know we're going to be struggling with this the rest of our lives, but we don't have to struggle in the sense of if we believe in this, we can rest in that and not beat ourselves up in the process, but rejoice in the process. So in closing, we all know there's a God. Everyone that you work with, everyone in your life knows there's a God. Just trust that that's true and then be a part of that process with them to discover that. Also know that everyone worships something including ourselves. As a result, I'm a slave to that which I worship, and this explains the darkness and the stuff that Robin was talking about earlier. When you see the darkness in life, it's a result of this. It's a result of the idolatry. 
Even the best things of the world don't satisfy the void of God and is left in each one of our hearts because he's made us for eternal things. That's why we talk about the eternal perspective. He did not make us for the temporal. Although we're in the temporal, ultimately he made us for the eternal. He made us for community with each other. This is not an, an individual faith. This is a community faith. There are promises to the community of the body of Christ, and he calls us together in that. We must understand that our desire is to be our own creator. Our desire is to control everything that happens in our lives. Because we want to control security. We want to control our significance. That's, it's insatiable. Apart from belief by faith in his promises, that's the way we're going to live our life, in that illegitimate hope. So we've always got to remember, we're never going to maintain this. We are slaves to the king, and we serve at his disposal. At his pleasure. Whatever he wants us to do, that's what we go do. No matter how much it hurts or how much it doesn't hurt. That's what he calls us to. Understand that he makes me secure. Not my house, my relationships, my money, my job. He makes me significant. Not my position or my power in the world. Not the university I went to or want to go to. He makes me satisfied. The other things are, will never satisfy the depths of my soul. Those are all temporary. And then he defines what success is. And in the Bible, he defines success as simply obedience, abiding in the vine. Our lives are very simple. When he is our truth, we abide in the vine. As we abide in the vine, our spirit and our soul are free to be at the disposal of the Holy Spirit to be who we are in Christ, who he already made us to be. Christ in you, Paul says, the hope of glory. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Brothers and sisters, we're the richest people in the world in Christ. We have more money than we ever, ever could possibly need. I'm not talking about physically. I mean, he has everything at his disposal. He has all the power at his disposal. He has all our reputations completely in his hand. We don't need to protect ourselves. We don't need to protect our reputations. He completely has that under control. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are amazing stories and representations of what this looks like. And I don't compare myself and beat myself up about whether or not I would make that same decision that moment. What I look at is the grace of God and the object of their faith was so powerful, they knew they had no other choice because of their simply, they believed that was true. Therefore, why would I choose anything else? It would be stupidity. It would be foolishness. And that's where our focus is, not on whether or not I do this or that. It's Do I believe in that truth? Christ in me, the hope of glory. He doesn't want us having a bunch of chocolate bunnies in our life. He wants himself to be the truth, the center of everything that we are. Father, we thank you for the privilege uh, that you have given us so much in this community here. We are infinitely rich. We have infinite reputation because of you. You said that those that are yours, you actually know them. And to be known by the living God, the God of the universe, there's nothing greater than to be known by you. Being known by some person, being known by some culture, to be famous, all that, that has nothing in comparison to being simply known by you. We pray that we can rest and rejoice in the truth of your Son, came for us, who wants us to live in him for eternity.
we're grateful. We're so thankful. Our hearts are filled and overflowing with gratitude. We ask that this community would be a powerful impact on those around us because of the demonstration of the Spirit's power, not ourselves. Of your love overflowing because of the truth that we follow would not let us bow our knees to our culture, our companies, our schools. We would only bow our knee to you and be your slave at your pleasure. In Jesus' name, amen.